Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at the church in Redlands, California. Our church is an affirming community who strives to empower women and participate in the sacred work of anti-racism. We are currently in a 66-part sermon series through every book in the Bible, started back in 2013 before we were a church, and we are currently on the book of Judges. Now, sermons at Paradox are designed to start discussions and not end them. This is very important because you will probably disagree with something I say because we are looking at Judges 19 today, and this episode is entitled, The Judgment of the Levite's Concubine. The story of the Levite's concubine is one of the most tragic stories in all of scripture. I wanted to tell you that at the beginning of this podcast, because at some point you will be tempted to ask the question, why are we telling this story? This story is so overwhelmingly sad, it begs the question as to whether or not we should tell it at all. Well, the reason we are telling the story is because we made a commitment back in 2013 to study every book of the Bible. And when we made that commitment, we promised ourselves that we would talk about the things that are hard to talk about. So while we made that commitment in 2013, here we are in 2021 studying our 57th book of the Bible, the book of Judges. And this book contains a story that is very difficult to talk about. So here at Paradox, we tell stories that are difficult to tell because we are doing our best to honor the commitment we made all the way back in 2013. And this story in particular, the story of the Levite's concubine, is a difficult story to tell but I personally believe that this story brings forward conversations that are necessary for us to have today so that we might become more loving people tomorrow. So with that, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 19, verse 1. We read, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite, Now, it's here that the author assumes that you know what a Levite is. A Levite is someone who descended from the tribe of Levi, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we are introduced to a man named Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, which literally translates as he who wrestles with God. Now, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had 12 different sons with four different women. The third oldest son of his was a man named Levi. And this son, Levi, is considered to be the great patriarch of the tribe of Levi. Now, for purposes later in the story, it's important that you meet some other sons of Jacob slash Israel. The fourth oldest son was a man named Judah, the patriarch of the tribe of Judah, And the youngest son, 12 of 12, was a man named Benjamin, the patriarch of the tribe of Benjamin. When reading this story, the author assumes that you know what each of these tribes are. 
Now, one important note to make here is that the tribe of Levi was different than the other 11 tribes. The reason for this is because in the Levites' history, there was a man named Aaron who was the first high priest of Israel. Therefore, all priests who worked at the tabernacle and then eventually the temple had to descend from the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi is considered to be the religious tribe out of all of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Judges 19 introduces us to a certain Levite, the original audience of this writing would have thought, okay, this man is probably a religious man. We then continue to read in verse 1 that the Levite residing in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim took to himself a concubine. Now, a concubine is a woman that a man purchased that did not have the status of wife within the household. Now, of course, wives were not equal to the status of their husbands during the era of this writing. Which means that you had the man at the top of the household, you had his sons below him. Below his sons then were the man's wife, and even lower still were the man's concubines. Now this may come as a shock to you, as you remember that Levites were supposed to be the religious folks of this day. But it's important to remember that the sexual ethics have changed quite a bit since the book of Judges was written. The Levite represents men, and the men could own as many concubines as they could afford. And those concubines existed in a life that we would associate or label in our society today as sex slaves. So the book of Judges, chapter 19, starts with the story of a man acquiring a sex slave. And while you may say to yourself, wait a second, doesn't the Bible have a higher standard of marriage? Doesn't the Bible say that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman? I would respond to you, no, the Bible doesn't really say that. You may find a verse here or verse there that supports that idea of marriage, but that is definitely not the dominant theme or ideal of what marriage is according to the Bible. You see, in my opinion, when you read the Bible, there are all sorts of diverse opinions about what marriage is. But the most common theme, the most common definition of what marriage is according to the Bible is that women are property to be owned. So when someone says we need to get back to the biblical definition of marriage, I would respond, no, nah, I don't think we do. I don't think we need to go back to a time when women were property. And if you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not sure I agree with the biblical definition of marriage, I would say you are not alone because I do not agree with it either. The fact is most of us don't agree with how the Bible defines marriage. Just a few of us are not afraid to say it out loud. So let's return to Judges 19.1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite residing in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, Bethlehem is a very familiar place to most Christians in America today. The reason for this is because Bethlehem is known 
as the place where Jesus Christ was born. But Jesus Christ was not the only person born in Bethlehem. Sometime around a thousand years before Christ was born, a man named David was born in Bethlehem. And David would later rise to the throne of Israel, and he is considered by many to be Israel's greatest king. But before David was born there, there was a woman who was born in Bethlehem. And this woman would later be sold into sex slavery to a man who came from the tribe of Levi. Verse 2 reads, But his concubine became angry with him, and she went away with him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Verse 3, Then her husband. Now notice the title that the author gives to the Levite. He calls her husband. Because while the concubine was not viewed as the same status as a wife, the man in this relationship was viewed as the same status as husband. This is a misogynistic double standard. So we read, Then her husband set out after her to speak tenderly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. When he reached her father's house, the girl's father saw him and came with joy to meet him. Now this is a stunning scene because here is the Levite who is oppressing this man's daughter and the father of the concubine does not respond with anger upon seeing him but instead welcomes him with joy and invites him to stay in his house. Verse 4, his father-in-law now notice once again how the man receives the full status of the title. His father-in-law, the girl's father, made the Levite stay, and he remained with him for three days. He invites him to stay and eat around his table. After the third day, he invites him to stay another night, and the Levite agrees to stay one more night. The next day, the fifth day, the father-in-law is giving this man his food. He's telling him about how he'd like for him to stay another night. This man eats lunch and then dinner. And as the sun begins to set, the father says, won't you stay one more night? But the Levite refuses. He says, no, we are going now. And he goes north. He takes with him his two donkeys, his servant, and his concubine. This small traveling party goes five miles to the north and arrives at the place of the Jebusites. Once they arrive in this land, the servant implores his master, the Levite, and says, It's getting dark. Let us stay with the Jebusites for the night and then continue traveling tomorrow. The Levite thinks about his servant's request, and he immediately declines. He says, I don't trust the Jebusites. No, I don't. Let's keep traveling. Let's continue to go north till we find our own people the Israelites, and then will spend the night with them. He then looks at his concubine and his servant and his two donkeys and says, let's travel on to Gibeah or Ramah. Now remember, it's getting dark outside. Gibeah and Ramah are about five miles further to the north of the land of the Jebusites. So this man now is putting himself and his traveling party at risk because he wants to stay with his own people. 
Not only that, but when you hear these two names of these two cities, someone who has studied the Bible carefully will say, "Mm, I don't think those cities are a coincidence. Because as we are reading through this story, you may have noticed that no one in this story has a name. That continues until the end of this story. The people in this story are unnamed, but the towns and the tribes of this story are named. This is important for us to notice because when we look at the names of the towns, we realize they start to represent something. As we said earlier, Bethlehem is the birthplace of David. Ramah, which is where the Levite suggests they travel to, is the birthplace of the prophet Samuel, who would later anoint David as king. Gibeah, the other alternative destination that the Levite suggests past the land of the Jebusites, is the birthplace of Saul, the first king of Israel who was violently overthrown by David. Now, if you are like me, you see that the people in this story are unnamed, but the towns and the tribes are named. And you start to get the sense that maybe this story isn't really just about this story. And when you consider that there were two major political figures about the time this story was written down, and these two major political figures had very different agendas in what they wanted to do with the kingdom of Israel, you start to realize that there is a strong political agenda behind the story of Judges 19. And as the story continues to unfold, of course, the Levite presses on in the midst of darkness and arrives at the city of Gibeah, which would later become the birthplace of Saul. Now, in this story, you'll notice there is a movement from Bethlehem to Gibeah. And the story of Bethlehem takes place in an abundance of light. And the story of Gibeah takes place under the cover of darkness. Now, once arriving in Gibeah, the Levite, the concubine, and the servant sit in the middle of the town square. This was traditional during the era of this writing, because a foreigner would go and sit in the middle of the square and wait for someone to invite them to stay in their house with them. In verse 15, we read, The Levite went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took them in to spend the night. After a considerable amount of time passes, an old man who is residing in the city of Gibeah, but who immigrated there from Ephraim, sees this traveling party, and he asks them who they are and where they are going. After hearing their story, this old man invites them to stay the night at his house. In verse 21, we read, So the old man brought him into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet, they ate, and they drank. The author wants us to know that the old man in this story is demonstrating exemplary hospitality. Verse 22 reads, while they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city of Gibeah, a depraved lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. 
The mob said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the Levite who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. So here in the middle of this exemplary hospitality moment, we have the exact opposite happen when the locals show up. The locals bang on the door and demand that the old man release the Levite so that they can rape him. Now we read in verse 23, the old man's response. We read, the old man went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man is my guest. Do not do this vile thing. And just when we think that this old man is a hero, the story flips in the next verse when he continues by saying, Here are my virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them. But against this man, do not do such a vile thing. Oh, it's sickening to read, isn't it? A man says, do not hurt this man for he is my guest. But here is my virgin daughter. Rape her if you wish, but you will not touch this man. In verse 25, we read, but the mob would not listen to him. So the Levite seized his concubine and put her out to them. They wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until the morning. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. In the morning, her master got up, opened the doors of the house, and he went out to go on his way. There was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And in one of the most sickening verses in all of the Bible, he says, get up, we are going. Then in verse 27, we read, there was no answer. Then the Levites put her on the donkey, and the man set out for his home. When he arrives at home, we read about how the Levite then cuts her body into pieces, and he mails the pieces of her body to the other tribes of Israel. This so enrages the other 11 tribes of Israel that a civil war takes place in Judges chapter 20. This civil war results in the deaths of 60,000 Israelites. And then the book of Judges comes to a close in Judges chapter 21, which is all about the political retribution that the people of the tribe of Benjamin will face for enacting such a terrible crime. And that is how the book of Judges ends. Oh, man. I have to tell you that my heart breaks when I read this story. And now just telling you this story on this podcast, I feel overwhelmed by the tragedy of what unfolds in these chapters. There is so much violence and anger and pain that it is difficult for me to process. I don't even know where to begin at times 
when I stand in the shadow of this story. Because the shadow of this story is catastrophically dark. So in the midst of that confusion, I, I want us to imagine what would happen if we could have the author of the book of Judges on this podcast. Let's just pretend what he might have acted like and what he might have said in response to some basic questions. The first question I would ask this author is, why did you find it important to tell us this story? I believe the author would think about this for a moment and then respond by saying, understand what is happening here. The Levite is the main character of the story. He first goes to Bethlehem and meets his concubine's father. While he is there, the father of the concubine, the Levite's father-in-law, look at this man and demonstrate an extraordinary amount of hospitality. He welcomes him to stay, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five days. And it is only on the Levite's insistence that he leaves that the father's hospitality finally runs out. Now, there is another man who practices hospitality, and that is the old man in the city of Gibeah. Sure, when they first arrive, the Levite, the concubine, and the servant don't have a place to stay. But eventually, the old man finds him and demonstrates, once again, the model of hospitality. I told you this story, I believe the author would say, because what you have to understand about my culture and my era is that hospitality is the highest ethic for human beings. I grew up in an era, the author would continue, in which war was only a breath away. At any moment, another tribe could attack my tribe, and that would be the end of my life story. Hospitality, he would continue, was ultimately the antidote to that tribal warfare. The idea that you welcomed people outside of your tribe into your home was the best thing, the highest morality that any human could subscribe to in my era. And so back in my day, we had 12 different tribes, and some tribes were hospitable and other tribes were not. And so, the author would say, the people from the tribe of Judah were always the most hospitable people. And it was important to commend and celebrate them for that. However, people from the tribe of Benjamin mm, were not hospitable at all. And they needed to be condemned and reprimanded for that behavior. Not only that, Craig, the author would continue, but you must remember that I was writing this story several centuries after it would have occurred. I wrote this story down after the life of Saul and after the life of David. And when we consider that the people of Judah, based in Bethlehem, are very hospitable people, which is the highest moral code that anyone can live by, then David exemplifies a moral man. Now compare and contrast that with the people of Gibeah, who were not hospitable, but instead outright hostile toward foreigners, 
and you realize that they are the most immoral people in this story. Therefore, I wrote this book and I felt that it was important to end with this story because I wanted the people who read it to know that our people made a mistake when we crowned Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, from the city of Gibeah, as our first king. However, this is not a tragic story, the author would continue, because our people got it right when they crowned David from the tribe of Judah, from the city of Bethlehem, as king. Saul was an immoral git right from the beginning, while David is a moral model that we can hold up on a pedestal. That's why I told this story. And with that, the author of Judges would finish his answer to my question. Now, upon hearing that, I might ask a couple of quick follow-up questions. I may say, can you tell me, who is the villain in this story? The author would say, isn't it obvious? The villain of this story is the tribe of Benjamin. After that answer, I would then ask the author, and who is the hero? I believe the author would say, well, there are two heroes in this story. The heroes of this story are the father and the old man. Now, at this point, I would lose my composure. I would say to the very author of the book of Judges, are you kidding me? The old man is a hero? Wasn't that the guy who said, here, assault my daughter? It's fine as long as you don't assault my guest. And upon hearing that, the author of Judges would lean in close and say, ah, you have to remember that hospitality is the highest ethic in our culture. To which I would say to him, well, hospitality toward men seems to be the highest ethic in your culture. And he would look at me and say, of course. Do you think hospitality toward women matters at all? And at that point, I'd realize there's not much else to agree on. And I would thank you for being on the show. And we would wrap up this podcast. But now that the author of Judges is no longer with us, I would like to ask you a question. Who is actually the villain in this story? Now, most people might respond by saying the men from the tribe of Benjamin, which would be the exact same answer that the author of Judges gave. After all, the men from the tribe of Benjamin are the ones that did the assault. They're the ones that acted the worst. They're the instigators, and they are the problem. But I would say that that answer has a few too many words. I actually think the answer is better if you just say the men and leave off from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you may be surprised to hear this and ask the question, well, which men are you talking about? To which I would say, all of the men in this story are the villains of this story. Think about it. You have the mob which committed the assault, which is, of course, sin. On top of that, you have the Levite, who is the one that seized the concubine and threw her out to the men to have her assaulted. 
Not only that, but the Levite is the one who is actively oppressing the concubine into her life of sex slavery. The old man in the story was willing, without hesitation, to allow his daughter to be assaulted, as well as the concubine to be assaulted, as long as it kept men safe. And what about the concubine's father? He's a villain too, because he is the one who initially sold his daughter into sex slavery. And then on top of all of these men, you have the person who wrote this story, the author, who is most likely a man. And the way the author begins this story is a Levite acquired a concubine from the city of Bethlehem. Well, the minute that you establish that hierarchy as the ethic of the story is the minute that you ultimately condone violence against women because women are of such low status that they are disposable. You can draw a straight line from the opening verse about a man acquiring a concubine to the gruesome violence that happens at the end of this chapter. And so the author is also a villain because the author views women as inferior to men, which informs the way this story is told. We ask the question, who is the villain in this story? And the answer is, all of the men are. Now here's where this story gets really interesting. Because if we can clearly see that all of the men in Judges 19 are the villain, then we can ask another question. Which of these men believe that they are actually a good man in this story? Because when we ask that question, then we can imagine the Levite coming forward and saying, well, I am a good man. I followed the law. Yes, I threw my concubine out to protect me, but that's what the law tells me to do. The old man would then also step forward and say, well, I am a good man. I was hospitable to the Levite, and that is the highest ethic. Who cares what happened to his concubine as long as he was safe? And then I believe the father of the concubine would come forward and say, well, I am a good man. I mean, I did a legal transaction with the Levite, and I was hospitable to him. Isn't that what good men do? And then the author of the book of Judges would come forward and say, well, I'm a good man. I wrote a book of the Bible. How much better do you want me to be? And when you consider the fact that all of these men are villains, but all of them consider themselves to be heroes of this story, there is something profound at the heart of this tragic story. To all of my brothers who are listening to this podcast, this story teaches us that it's possible that you truly believe that you are a good man and that society and religion tell you that you are a good man. But at the same time, you are not actually doing what is good. And this story in Judges 19 challenges us to see how we believe that we are good men even though we may be complicit in the sin of misogyny. Because here we have a story that is one of the most tragic, gruesome, and violent stories in all of the Bible. 
The foundation of this story is misogyny. And all around the foundation of this sin, there are men insisting that they are in fact good men, even though there is a woman who is murdered. These ideas were candidly discussed at the Hollywood Reporter's Celebration of Women in Entertainment in the year 2018. Now, you will most likely remember that 2018 was the year that women said enough in the entertainment industry. This was the year of the Me Too movement when women said we are tired of being harassed and objectified and receiving propositions for sex in exchange for favors. We will not stand for this anymore. So when the Hollywood Reporter gathered women together in December of 2018, the opening act, if you want to call it that, of this ceremony was comedian or prophet, or probably both, Hannah Gadsby. She began to speak about how irritated she was with men who talk about the sin of misogyny and then label other men as either being good men or bad men. The problem, she says, is the fact that it's the good men who come up with the ethics for what makes a man good or bad. Here is her direct quote. She says, guess what happens when only good men get to draw that line? This world happens. A world full of good men who do very bad things and still believe in their heart of hearts that they are good men because they have not crossed the line, because they moved the line for their own good. Women should be in control of that line that distinguishes between good men and bad men, no question. And when I heard this speech, I immediately thought to myself, is Hannah Gadsby talking about bad men in Hollywood? Or is she talking about Judges 19? Because for me, the answer is yes. It's the same story. And to my brothers who are listening to this podcast, it's very easy for us to point to the men of Judges 19 and say, those are the bad men. But when we externalize the sin of misogyny and we read the story of Judges 19 and look at all of the men and say, those are the bad men. Thank God that I am not a bad man, but I am a good man. It is at that very moment that nothing changes. And rather than externalize the sin of misogyny, we need to recognize that misogyny is part of our interior. We need to look inward and say, how am I participating in the sin of misogyny? Whether it's passive or it's active participation, this sin is still occurring and I am benefiting from it. What can I change about myself in order to help myself and all of the other people who are working to bring this sin to an end? To all of my friends who are listening, when we read the story of Judges 19, the fact is this story is so incredibly tragic because it is a story of complete rejection of this woman's humanity. Therefore, the best thing we can do to combat this tragedy is to restore this woman's humanity. 
and on a much larger stage, the best thing that we can do to combat the sin of misogyny is to bring forward women's stories, to allow women to influence all of us so that that way we may see and accept and embrace their humanity as well. This story revolves around a woman. We never hear her name. The main thing we know about her is that a violent act was committed to her. But that violent act should not define who she was. It's important for us to imagine and remember that this woman was someone much bigger than those few short moments when she was attacked. She had a name. She had dreams. She had hopes. She had passions. She had things that she did that she loved to do in this life. She had a family. She had a mother. And the more that we think about those things and imagine those things and accept those things, and the more we bring this woman to life, the more the story becomes urgent in its tone. The more pressing it is for us to be able to talk about this story on a regular basis within churches. The more important it becomes for us to recognize that sexual abuse still happens and men that are committing this abuse must be brought to justice. And all of that comes forward when we recognize that this woman's story is unquestionably sacred. And to all of my sisters who are listening to this podcast, my hope is that from this story, you may always remember what you already know to be true. Your story is sacred. And while this world built by men will try to tell you that your story is less than or secondary or subservient to a man's story, may you trust that your story is sacred and your story is crafted in the image of the divine mother. May all of us see and embrace the divine mother in all.